You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 41. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to Liberty Buzzard, the podcast for inquisitive minds. Today, Thomas and I are going to discuss an extremely interesting and well-written article uh, that uh, I found. Uh, actually, I think Apple gave it to me. My Apple News feed gave it to me. I originally saw it on Politico.com, and it has since been syndicated to a couple of other political-type websites, Real Clear Politics, um, and maybe one other one that I saw it on. Written by a gentleman named Matthew Pritchard. And I actually reached out to Matthew via Twitter, asked him if he wanted to come on the show. And he said he was really busy right now, couldn't uh, fit it in. But I hope, uh, especially after I mentioned to him that uh, we've already discussed his article, that he chooses to come on later. Because uh, if he is as smart in uh, real life, which I'm sure he is, as he makes himself out to be from his article, I think it could be a fascinating conversation. Um, Anyway, back to the article. The title of the article is, Will Democrats Regret Weaponizing the Judiciary? Question mark. Will Democrats regret weaponizing the judiciary? Well, my my first uh, comment to that is is uh, both sides are probably weaponizing the judiciary. So, I mean, I guess we have to touch on that first. It's not just a Democrat thing. It's a, it's a Republican and Democrat thing. Don't you think, Thomas? Yeah, both parties have done it over the history of the judiciary. And one of the great things about Pritchard's article in Politico, which we will link to in the show notes, is that he gives the... Um, history of it. And it actually starts in uh, arguably in the early 1900s when what the Supreme Court in those days was doing was kind of forcing laissez-faire economics down the throats of states that were wanting to restrict the free market, which is fascinating. Like my thoughts on that are fascinating because I, in general, am a laissez-faire, you know, I believe in laissez-faire economics. But I also believe in state sovereignty. And, you know, I, I believe that there's no law keeping, uh, you know, states like Maryland from making Catholicism the state religion. You know, just because Congress can make no law respecting the establishment of religion doesn't mean that a state uh, is prohibited from doing that. And I believe that there's a lot of um, sovereignty that states should have because people are able to vote with their feet. Right. If I don't like the way that California is making it hard for me to start and run a business because of all their crazy regulations, I can take my feet and move myself to Texas, which, you know, thousands of people are doing every day. Thousands of Californians. Yeah. The ability to vote with your feet allows the state to have more freedom. Like there's no real way to vote with your feet out of America. Right. Going from America to another country is really difficult. It's very expensive uh, and maybe even illegal. Right. Like you have to ask that other country if they'll have you and they may or may not say yes. Whereas, you know, you can just get in your car and drive to the next state over. In the next city over. So I I believe that the more local the government is, the more power it can have because the freedom of the residents to pick up and move. But in in the early 1900s, the Supreme Court was saying, no, these laws, there's this kind of implied law of right to contract in the Constitution, uh, very similar to the implied law of right of privacy that they used, um, you know, 70 years later for the abortion or 60 years later 
later for the abortion Roe v. Wade um, argument. But they, you know, they squint to the Constitution and find this implied right that the Constitution doesn't explicitly say, but it's like, well, it implicitly stated this right, and so we are uh, enforcing it, it, you know, to the expense of these local governments who passed this law, and, and so we did it a little bit. As conservative, I'm saying we as conservatives did it in the early 1900s, but then the Democrats did it really big uh, during the New Deal. Uh, there was this threat uh, from FDR that if you don't start voting my way on these bills, I will pack the court. And this is the true nuclear option. So there's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court must have nine judges. Nowhere that says that. And there's nothing keeping the president of the United States from appointing nine more justices to the Supreme Court. Nothing but convention and checks and uh, balances on power. But FDR had such a strong majority in the House and Senate. He had the ability to pack the court. And because he had that ability, the court conceded and it started voting his way on a lot of his, frankly, unconstitutional wealth redistribution plans by the federal government. Uh, and the court was very humble. It was a very humble court for several decades after that, where they weren't making a lot of big um, cases. They did some in the 50s and 60s on civil rights. And then, of course, the uh, starting in the 1960s, the hum- humility of the court was gone. <laughs> and they started being very much an activist court and in some ways have been an activist court ever since. And I think as we record this, the Kavanaugh hearings are still ongoing and we might get into that here in a little bit. Um, But I think the bigger underlying trend, the dead news Liberty buzzard trend that we're looking at is the fact that this hearing is so important. There's a very real sense that, that who is selected as the next Supreme Court justice is more important than who wins the midterm elections. And I want you to just think about that for a little bit. Everyone in on November, early November, is going to go to the polls and we're going to vote for new governors. We're going to vote for new senators. We're going to vote for new congressmen. And none of that is as important as who gets selected as the next Supreme Court justice. And that's kind of scary because we don't vote for the Supreme Court justice. This is an unelected position. It's designed to be a non-democratically appointed position because we're not a pure democracy. We have elements of democracy. We have elements of aristocracy and we have elements of monarchy in our constitutional republic. And it's kind of scary to think of how powerful the Supreme Court is. And, you know, so far, the left has been using the Supreme Court as a way of getting around what the people want. Right. The they couldn't vote in uh, gay marriage, you know, through the ballot box. They couldn't get enough people to vote for that, you know, vote for leaders who wanted that. And when they would have ballot referendums, they would lose them. Uh, And so what do they do instead of going out to the people to win that argument? They just do an end run around the people and go to the Supreme Court and get the decision that way, which, you know, I think they are winning the debate on that. And if there wasn't a vote now, I think they may win. but they've been doing this on topic after topic where they kind of ignore the will of the people. And once the right starts to do that and use the uh, Supreme Court to do an end round around the will of the people, I think there will be some howling from the left. That's my thought. What are your thoughts, Dustin? So, um, boy, you hit on a lot of topics there, Thomas. Um, you know, in, in the frame of reference of uh, Mr. Pritchard's article, I think... Um, it's important to note 
couple things that you said. One, it is an unelected position. It's also a lifetime appointment. Um, so, you know, the, the, the person who's nominated as a Supreme Court justice and confirmed doesn't stop being on the Supreme Court until they either resign or they die. Um, that's a long time, especially in, the, in the, the strategy is these days you nominate the youngest justice that you can. Another aspect of the Supreme Court, um, as I see it, is, and, there, and you know, there's really nothing in the Constitution that says this either, but I think logically it makes sense that the Supreme Court is supposed to be an apolitical body. It's not supposed to be a conservative body. It's not supposed to be a progressive body. Um, it's supposed to be a body of extremely intelligent, um, knowledgeable people who are so intimate with the Constitution and with um, common law that they will make impartial decisions of whether things are constitutional or whether they are not constitutional. Now, of course, there's a lot of, you know, in between the lines reading of the Constitution. So, yes, it's it's not a perfect document. It's also what makes it a perfect document is the fact that there's a lot of interpretation there. So, yes, their job is to interpret the Constitution, but ideally in the, this perfect world that we all seek, um, it should be an apolitical body. It should not be something that is necessarily conservative or, or, or progressive. However, we are all human beings, and human beings are influenced by their perception of the world, and a lot of times that perception, when it comes to politics, is going to boil itself down, render itself down into conservative versus progressive, Republican versus Democrat, whatever title or flavor you want to call it. So you you start having these politicians because it, it, it goes beyond party and ideology. Now it's becoming tribal. It doesn't even matter what the truth is anymore. It's just my side and your side, and I want my side to win just because it's my side and we want to win because winning's fun. Not necessarily what's moral or what's right or what's true or what's fact. It's it's just tribal. I mean, these days when you talk about Kavanaugh, you look at these polls. People don't even look at the possibilities. They've already made up their mind of whether he's guilty or he's not guilty of these accusations, despite the thinness of the evidence. They they make up their minds based on what party they're in. And it's just going to automatically define whether they think that Dr. Ford is telling the truth or that Justice Kavanaugh is telling, excuse me, uh, Judge Kavanaugh is telling the truth. So, yeah, I mean, it's gotten tribal. And that's that's the nature of of what the Supreme Court has turned into. And I think the most important aspect of Mr. Pritchett's article is not will Democrats regret weaponizing the judiciary, it's will anybody regret weaponizing the judiciary. Because all of a sudden, when you start using these little tricks, these little parlor room tricks or bureaucratic tricks or um, procedural tricks, guess what? That can be used against you in the future. And things aren't static. Things are constantly moving. And I guess the reason that the battleground has fallen to the Supreme Court is because of the lifetime appointment and because it is a uh, more static body than is uh, definitely the House of Representatives, which, of course, gets reelected every two years, uh, more static than the uh, presidency, which is every four years, and then even the longest serving uh, congr- Congress person, which is our senators, for every six years. Um, so... Yeah, uh, it's it's dangerous to weaponize the judiciary simply because it is so long lasting, and uh, yeah, that's what. What do you think, Thomas? 
So there are some checks and balances. Uh, Congress is able to impeach Supreme Court justices. And if my memory serves me correctly, uh, you know, they're in for good behavior. And they used to get impeached for things like drunkenness and for swearing in the olden days. So they were really expected to be beacons of virtue. That, that's a hole in my knowledge, Thomas. I don't even I can't even say I know much about past um, past examples of when Supreme Court justices have been impeached. Well, it hasn't happened uh, I, hardly at all in the last 80 years, uh, I think. But in like the 1800s, they they were uh, impeached quite a bit, it, if my memory is serving me well. And it, you know, of course, it may not be. But one thing I found was funny while I was researching for this, if you Google Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has reviews on Google. So who judges? The judges? Anyone can. <laughs> they can go on Google and write a review of the Supreme Court. <laughs> Have you checked Yelp? <laughs> they have a Yelp score. Now, to be fair, this is uh, most of these are reviews of the building and like if their coffee is good. And some people are like, I love their McNuggets. Probably the best McDonald's in Washington, D.C. Five stars from somebody named KI120. Um, anyway, I just find that that is helpful. Um, I, it, what's interesting about the Supreme Court as a body is that it is a way of past generations to influence current generations. It is, of all of the institutions, the biggest institution for holding us back. It is inherently a conservative institution because the Supreme Court justices, almost all of them, are always appointed by previous presidents. So currently we have one Trump appointee on the Supreme Court. Uh, we have uh, appointees going back all the way to George H.W. Bush. So Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. He was appointed by H.W. Bush. We have two judges appointed by Bush. We have uh, two judges appointed by Bill Clinton, right? Like that was, we're talking a long time ago. And then two justices uh, by Barack Obama. And then there's vacant seat. And then, of course, Neil Gorsuch is appointed by Trump. And so it becomes this kind of rolling institution of the last 30 years or so of history. And it's a way for H.W. Bush, President H.W. Bush, who hasn't been in power since, you know, before the Internet, is still influencing the court and still influencing our day to day lives through his appointment of Clarence Thomas. And if you compare this form of government to, say, a parliamentary system, which is what most of Europe has, they have parliaments of various sizes, Parliaments, I don't like parliamentary systems as much as ours. I prefer ours for a lot of reasons. And one of the strengths and weaknesses of her parliamentary system is that it is more democratic. So in a sense, the monarchy of England is more democratic than the constitutional republic of the United States of America, which is really funny. It's a constitutional monarchy, <laughs> Thomas. Let's be fair, a constitutional monarchy. But they don't have a written constitution. The Magna Carta, Thomas, come on. <laughs> so, uh, we, I mean, if y'all are curious, we can totally talk about how the British system works. But their constitution is precedent. So, like, we talk about precedent in court cases. Well, their constitution is just the concept of precedent. And how we've done it is how we'll always do it. That's their quote-unquote constitution, which is really fascinating. Uh, they're able, though, to make really quick changes uh, when they need to. And the best example of this is World War II. Uh, the guy running the, the country, the prime minister, was a uh, Hitler appeaser 
and totally had Hitler wrong. And there was one guy in parliament who understood Hitler at a fundamental level and had been shouting from the rooftops to anyone who would hear him exactly how to handle Hitler. And once Hitler invades Poland, England is like, well, we have appointed, we have the wrong prime minister. And do you know how long it took them to take the wrong guy out and put the right guy in? The right guy, by the way, is Winston Churchill for this fact. keeping score at home. <laughs> it took them about a week. They were able to replace their prime minister in a week. <laughs> you know, could you imagine replacing the president with a president of, that was completely opposite to him in a week in the United States? There's no way. Our whole system is not designed to move that quickly. And I think that that's our biggest strength. It does cause us to hold on to things that are wrong longer than we should. Uh, And it can create some disillusionment when the um, body of the, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, loses the trust of the people. And there have been times, uh, again, going back to the 1800s, when the Supreme Court made a ruling the president didn't like the ruling. So Andrew Jackson, for instance, a good example. Uh, there was a ruling Tennessee. There was some uh, dispute with the Indian tribes there, the Native American tribes, the Tennesseans. I think it was in Tennessee. It may have been one of the Carolinas was wanting to take land away from the Native Americans. And the Supreme Court said, no, you have to honor this treaty. Andrew Jackson was like, how dare you? If you want us to honor the treaty, make us honor the treaties. Like if the Supreme Court wants us to do this, it can enforce it. And it was kind of the ultimate show of executive power, because while the judiciary, you know, interprets the law, it doesn't enforce the law. There's no troops that report to the Supreme Court. There's no people with guns that report to the Supreme Court, except for perhaps a small a security force for the safety of the justices themselves. And there is some checks and balances, but it seems like in the last 80 years, none of those checks have really been employed. In fact, everyone is wanting to defer to the Supreme Court on difficult decisions. Uh, you know, congressmen don't want to make difficult decisions because they can get voted out of office. So they, they're happy to defer those difficult decisions to the Supreme Court and often the same with the executive branch. And I think that's very scary because they are lifetime appointed and they aren't elected. Like that, that's a very powerful combination. That's very much a monarchical position, right? Who is appointed for life and it's not elected? Kings and emperors. <laughs> or they're voted for the initially, right? The Holy Roman Empire emperor was voted for by the senate of the you know german um confederation right the princes would gather and they'd vote for the who would be the next holy roman emperor but then he would be holy roman emperor for the rest of his life uh, so it's very more it's much more like that than it is like a true democracy and there's pros and cons but i do feel like the supreme court needs to be reined in somehow and i think congress has to be the one to do it so a couple notes on that, Thomas. Um, great uh, pull from history as far as uh, Andrew Jackson's concerned, because it's 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 a, it's a true dictum of the Constitution of the separation of powers. You know, um, the Congress is supposed to make policy, the executive branch is supposed to enforce policy, and the judici- judiciary is supposed to judge said policy. So I mean, that's kind of a very simplistic way to put it, but uh, it's mostly true. So the case is Worcester versus Georgia in 1832. And uh, this is uh, um, famously the Supreme Court ruled in favor of uh, some Cherokee uh, in terms of, uh, uh, I think, removing some white settlers or something to that point. 
and he responded, John Marshall, who was the Supreme Court just, Chief Justice at the time, has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. So, yes, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1832 made a decision. And Andrew Jackson said, that's great. And we're not going to do anything about it. So, you know, if the if the government doesn't work in in concert, then the government doesn't work. So if each part doesn't play its role, government is going to fail. And I think we discussed that in a um, previous episode. When we were talking about Ben Sass in Nebraska and his, his great speech earlier in the Kavanaugh hearings. But um, you also touched on the idea of precedent. And, uh, you know, yes, England's you know, quote unquote constitution, their their system of laws is common law, which is based almost entirely off of precedent. Well, ours is too, uh, but our precedent uh, goes back to the constitution as its base. So we have a constitution laying out an ideology and then that ideology um, or sets out the, the government and then the, the, the system of government, the way the laws are enforced, what laws we have changes over time, uh, according to, you know, the, the, the feelings and the ideology of the time and it changes and its ability to change is based on the concept of precedent and to understand this concept and how much and how, how much that influences our everyday life is so important. Um, because even though we have this great constitution document called the constitution, which just sets out, uh, our basic rights, the basic rights of the state, the basic rights and duties of the federal government, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in between those words that uh, can be read, and uh, it's pr- the concept of precedent that uh, that 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 allows our laws in a lot of ways to change when they're not outright changed by Congress because Congress just ain't that efficient, baby, and I think we all know that. Um, so yeah, and and then I also wanted to touch base on because you had my my wheel spinning as far as uh, the judiciary and impeachment. And we talked a little bit about that. And the only Supreme Court justice uh, to be formally impeached was by the name of Samuel Chase. And Thomas, and you might know this, you might not, but I'm gonna let you guess because guessing games are fun. Guess what president nominated Mr. Chase, excuse me, Justice Chase. Um, Abraham Lincoln. Oh man, that was a great guess. George Washington. Oh, wow. George Washington nominated Justice Chase in, I think it was 1804. I already closed out the article. Oops. Uh, 1804, uh, he was indicted by Congress, or excuse me, impeached by Congress uh, for uh, using politics, allowing politics to influence his decisions, which of course. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Oh, my goodness. It's interesting. He was... (laughs) He was cleared of wrongdoing by the Senate, much like Bill Clinton. He was impeached, but he was not convicted. Therefore, he remained in office. That's the only uh, Supreme Court justice to actually have been impeached. So important to know. Okay, so it must have been federal judges that were the ones that were impeached quite a bit. And we did have a federal judge impeached recently. Uh, This uh, Ten Commandments guy was impeached. So, okay, so it's not Supreme Court justices. Yes, that's true. A lot, a lot of sexual assault stuff going on there too. Uh, yeah, although I don't know if he's been convicted of any of that. I'm curious what the uh, yeah. what the latest is on that. 
But uh, okay, so that is fascinating because that is a power that Congress has. They've never fully uh, implemented it, although they got halfway there in the early days with one of George Washington's appointees, which is, you know, imagine voting to impeach a George Washington appointee. Although I, I imagine he didn't stand quite so tall to his peers as he has, you know, loomed over history. But you, you never know. Uh, one thing with the polit- politiza- politicization of the court. You can look at the Senate confirmation votes and back with the judges appointed by Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and H.W. Bush. Uh, a lot of these justices like um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it was a 96 to 3 vote. OK, so that's how things were back in 1993. So uh, you look at Neil Gorsuch, 54 to 45 <laughs> votes, so much closer vote, uh, 58 to 42 for uh Samuel Alito. Now, Clarence Thomas is a bit of an exception, 52 to 48. And there is some thought that Democrats really did not want uh, a Republican to appoint the first African-American Supreme Court justice. But uh, anyway, a lot of the firsts uh, for African-Americans have come through the Republican Party, not through the Democrat Party, because uh, Democrat Party historically very racist, especially in the early days. Uh, But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But uh, if we go to some of the recent retired justices, we're looking at 97 to zero for Anthony Kennedy. Uh, John Paul Stevens, 98 to zero. Sandra Day O'Connor, 99 to zero. Like there used to be this uh, sense that, you know, they were affirmed by both Democrats and Republicans. And now these are party line votes often. Um, And that I think is indication of how the court has been politicized and weaponized. And um, I think that's a bad trend. Yeah, it's it's an extremely bad trend, um, and I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, Gorsuch's vote. Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure that it has gone from taking. I think the last really controversial Supreme Court nominee was Clarence Thomas, um, for a lot of the same stuff that Kavanaugh is going through right now. So that was that was a long, real controversial one right now. And Thomas, you know, while I'm while I'm bumping my gums here, if you could look up what his uh, confirmation numbers were, but. Largely, it was historically believed that once a individual was nominated to be a Supreme Court Justice of the United States, so much vetting was done, and the person already had such a good reputation that the confirmation was largely a formality, which is why I think, in my opinion, the uh, the, the the numbers were usually so high for confirmation, because if you were good enough to get on a president's shortlist, especially in recent times, um, then you were largely it was it was largely seen that you were good enough to be um, on, on the bench. Now, um, for those of you who don't know, these public uh, hearings weren't even really a thing. They used to be private hearings, um, but they weren't really even a thing, I think, until the 30s. I have to go back and check, but it was relatively recently in our nation's history where the, the, the Supreme Court hearings were public. And even then, it was largely um, just another area for senators to give their soliloquies and uh, you know, uh, you know, spew out hot air, which is what senators really love doing more than anything else in this world. Um, so yeah, but recently it has become nothing more than just like everything else. It is a it is a um, it is a referendum on our president. He is so polarizing. And he is so far reaching and he is in the corner of so many people's minds, one side or the other, that 
everything <laughs> revolves around this man. And it's exasperating and fascinating to watch. Um, but yeah, so it, it's scary because now all of a sudden uh, we're weaponized the judiciary and how divisive do we get? Um, and that, that kind of frightens me a little bit, you know, uh, because we start getting really, really divisive over stuff like this and we start trying to pack lifetime appointments with political political operatives and I think our nation starts heading down a dark path. And so it, I don't like seeing it. I really don't. I prefer the days of, hey, whatever party is going to nominate a Supreme Court justice, they're going to do such a good job of nominating somebody that is so awesome that they're pretty much going to be confirmed by both parties because they're center enough and they're awesome enough that uh, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, Clarence Thomas, the vote was 52 to 48. So that was one of the uh, more close votes. And then, of course, Bork. <laughs> yeah. We can't not Bork. mention Bork, <laughs> Justice Bork, who uh, I know people who think that he was you know, the greatest mind, judicial mind of his generation. And the loss of Justice Bork was a, a huge loss to the country. And in many ways, the Bork vote was the beginning of this um, process. So it started in you know the early 1900s when the Supreme Court started kind of creating laws by squinting at the Constitution and looking at what's squished out. And um, it, it, as, you know, it wasn't a big problem early, or at least there wasn't a lot of people complaining about it. Now, in the 21st century, that's kind of a recognized role of the Supreme Court. There's people like us who complained about it, but it's something that they're doing. And so these um, races are becoming, every one of them is politicized to one degree or another. And uh, I want to close with one conspiracy theory, if I could. So Antonin Scalia died of somewhat mysterious causes and there was no autopsy the family did not request an autopsy and their family's wishes were respected in that matter and i i suspect this is pure conspiracy theory so i'm just going to label it and i don't get big on a conspiracy theories and this is purely my own theory this isn't Infowars, thomas this is liberty buzzard <laughs> this is my own theory but i think that republicans in congress knew about the foul play and instead of bringing the information to light they thought it would be destructive for the country and divisive and painful instead they're like we're just going to wait and vote in our own uh, supreme court nominee and not allow obama to appoint the replacement um, I don't. I now to be fair, I'm not saying Obama killed Scalia. I'm not saying that at all. With his I, own hand, <laughs> strangled the old man. Yeah, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. And I don't. And I don't believe that honestly. But just because Obama didn't do it doesn't mean that he died purely of natural causes. Maybe it was purely natural causes. The timing was just uh, really unfortunate. But uh, anyway, that that's my own little personal conspiracy theory. Uh, it, it, it's it's most likely untrue. So I do want to put two figures out there, Thomas. Okay. Um, one was uh, Sotomayor, um, who was our, our, I can't remember who was first, Kagan or Sotomayor, but our two most recent appointed justices. Uh, Sotomayor was uh, voted voted in, six or confirmed, excuse me, 63 to 37. And Elena Kagan was... You know, Kagan was 63 to 37. Sotomayor was 68 to 31. There we go. 
Okay, so very, very similar. So yes, they weren't. Uh, they certainly weren't the slam dunks that we were used to seeing in the past, and they were getting more politicized, but still, not nearly the party lines that we see today with our two most recent appointments and nominations, which was Gorsuch and, of course, Kavanaugh. Which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I wonder if Trump will be able, if it is even possible for Trump to appoint someone that would get voted for by the Democrats. I feel like Trump is so toxic to the left that if you're a Democrat senator and you vote for a Trump appointee, your voters are going to want your head on a stake, like out in front of the voting place, like your Democrat voters. Like, and a part of this is just the fact that we're so polarized now, right? Like, Democrats liked Bush, some of them did. And um, some Republicans liked Obama. I don't know any Democrats who like Trump, you know, like I, I just I, I feel like we're, uh, you know, and Bush uh, was more controversial than Clinton. Like, I, I feel like we're getting more and more polarized, like the whole country basically voted for Reagan. Uh, what he won, 49 or 50 states, I think the landslide that he came into office with. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, we're a long way away from those days. And I don't know how we're going to get there in the short term, uh, but I feel like voices like Liberty Buzzer, where we're not super partisan, I think are needed. Uh, we need some voices in the middle uh, trying to hold both sides accountable. But those are our thoughts. We want to know what you think. Leave us a comment. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, and we even have libertybuzzard.com. Let us know what you think. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com.